This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, we have the latest on how IFAD's dealing with the coronavirus crisis, and we have news from the nutrition frontline with IFAD's lead technical specialist, Joyce Njoro. And also, we hear from two of Africa's most important chefs who've been out and about visiting IFAD projects in their region, Chef Ali Artiste from Kenya and Chef Scar Mutoene from Lesotho. Also, we talk forestry with IFAD's experts and hear from a successful project in the mountains of Morocco. And we talk to Chris Smadger, who champions smallholder farming in developed countries. Don't forget, stay tuned, as we will hear exclusively from Michelin-starred chef Christina Bauman, who has a special message and a recipe just for you, as we all hashtag stay at home. And on top of that, Senegalese chef Pierre Tiam will also be joining us with his recommendations on store cupboard cooking. Can I smell a vegan chilli? Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast and please rate us. COVID-19 is having a huge impact on the world's health and also the global economy. While this crisis digs deep, we need agriculture to keep up supplies, remain productive. Donald Brown is Associate Vice President with IFAD. I asked him, how is the current pandemic affecting IFAD operations on the ground? So it's very country specific. The situation is very dynamic. And as we see changing day by day and week by week, countries that were open for business last week are not necessarily open for business this week. But in general terms, we're seeing many countries which are locking down, which is restricting movement both into and within countries. So that obviously affects us getting missions in, being able to get around the country and supervise, but also for our project management units in country to be able to implement activities. And we're getting uh, governments asking us not to send missions cancelling trainings on the projects because obviously with social distancing trainings and missions uh, are you know quite a lot of close proximity and obviously new projects it's very difficult to start them up we had a we had the highest ever approval of new projects last year but many of them the initial startup activities workshops cannot get underway at the moment how might we be changing our operations to incorporate the impacts of this pandemic? So, um, in a number of ways. Firstly, we are moving as much as possible to a much uh, stronger use of national consultants, who some of who can operate on the ground in countries which do not have internal movement restrictions, because we see some countries will, will not allow uh, uh, people into the country, but you can move in country. So much more use of national consultants, much more remote working. So we are trying to streamline procedures and also move to much more uh, digital-based solutions and paperless solutions. So, for example, approval processes, which some of which used to be paper-based, all moving to non-paper-based. Um, we're also fast-tracking a number of responses through our new procedures so that we can respond quicker uh, because they are much more streamlined. And then we're reprioritizing existing projects, some of the unallocated funding to the most immediate needs, which are things like um, access to inputs, be it seeds or vaccines or fertilizer, access to markets so they can actually get out and sell. Uh, a lot more emphasis, and we're doing a lot of work at thinking about how we can upscale our digital response. So how much more can we do remotely, be it on rural finance, be it on access to extension messages, etc. So we're looking at a big new push on digital. 
And what has been the impact on 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 IFAD itself, on on IFAD staff, and what are you doing to, to work smarter? So it's had uh, a significant impact on IFAD staff, uh, as you know. We have been going through a big process of decentralization over the last two to three years. So about 33% of EFAD staff from pretty well all our program management staff are now based in country. Many of them are locked down in country. Uh, a number of them, uh, because of the lack of medical facilities, have gone back to their home countries or third countries to telework. But EFAD more generally is teleworking at the moment now. Um, that, that in itself is an opportunity because it has made us move to uh, being able to have much more flexible and remote working. And it's gone very well, really. Uh, the only thing I would say is you spend a lot of time sitting in a chair uh, on Zoom when before you probably moved around a bit more. But, but, but the teleworking and the remote working as well. But we're also prioritizing activities. Obviously, our, our priority at the moment is to get a good response to uh, coronavirus, but also to the recovery phase. So working through what's practical, working through where there's the funding available, looking at additional activities is all the priority at the moment. But the biggest challenge we face is, you know, we, we know what, what are the appropriate sort of things to, to do in terms of response, but, you know, which partners can actually operate on the ground so it's you know you, you may know what you want to do but who is out there who can actually do it at this time is our biggest challenge that was ifad's associate vice president donald brown telling us how the international fund for agricultural development is working smarter to face up to the coronavirus challenge you're listening to Farms Food Future direct from my living room as we hashtag stay at home. Coming up in these uncertain times, we talk all things nutrition. Are insects the protein of the future? How can rural people extract the most from their crops? Find out more about these topics with our nutrition expert, Joyce Njoro, up next on this month's episode. Our roving reporter, Mara Zgroy, met up with Joyce to tell us her opinion about the Eat Lancet report on healthy diets and sustainable food systems. The report consists of a factful scientific review of what constitutes a healthy diet from a sustainable food systems point of view. Let's hear what Joyce has to say. So this report has generated a lot of debate, which is a good thing on diets, because for the first time, we are refocusing the attention of agriculture, not only on production, but also consumption, because we are producing food for people to consume. So we need to know what, what is healthy for them and what do they need. And while the definition of a healthy diet is accurate for certain demographics, it cannot be applied uniformly. We also need to be very sensitive to the challenges experienced by the Global South, with the absolute number of the undernourished people is increasing and the reality of limited choices of what to eat. So people sleep hungry and others only have one meal a day. So in that case, the choice is not the issue. Um, you probably have had this dilemma multiple times as a nutrition expert at IFAD. How do you give advice for rural people suffering from malnutrition whilst respecting their traditional diet? I think first and foremost, it is important to understand that the causes of malnutrition are many. They can be diet-related, it can be because of inadequate care of children, or poor environmental health. So going deeper into diets, from our experience, some traditional diets are healthier than others. So to ensure dietary adequacy, IFAD promotes those traditional diets of high nutritional value, while also introducing new options to the community. These may be new varieties, or even new crops, but usually those which are adaptable to the environment. So to promote consumption of these new varieties, we always promote campaigns, do promotional campaigns to enhance their consumption. Another important aspect of what you're saying is that these traditional crops are often local, so they're more adap better adapted to the local climate and environment, right? Yes, they are better adapted, but because they, have, they are seen as the food of the poor, they are not as interesting as as other modern crops. But then we are seeing a shift now. There is a higher demand for these traditional crops, also making them not even available for the, for the same poor people who need them. 
Like the example of quinoa right now? Yes, quinoa after a lot of promotion, then it is no longer available. It's a rich man's crop, it's no longer a poor man's crop. What IFA does is that to also encourage the farmers to eat what they grow, because it is very easy to sell everything if the value is high. But if they don't use it, then they lose their nutritional value. So the, what we invest in is uh, social behavior change communication. Uh, to, to, ensure, to promote the, the use of local foods, having local maybe recipes, recipe for change, for example, making it interesting and cooking it in a different way and preparing it in a different way that makes it exciting. And yes, going back to the topic of balanced diets and specifically of animal proteins, what's your take on alternative protein sources? For instance, insects are increasingly being defined as the protein source of the future. Do you think the IFAD will be promoting them as a sustainable alternative to meat in the nearby future? I would not say that insects are proteins for the future. They are proteins for now. Because in fact, insects have been part of the cultural diets of many populations for generations. Although, of course, with very little investment from governments. Um, so with the increasing demand for food and also following growing population and urbanization, the trend is likely to change in the future. So it's very possible that maybe in the next five years, you'll see more and more insects on your diet than you are seeing now. But we also know that uh, while we don't have the luxury of waiting for the markets to develop alternative proteins, so including synthetic meats, given the rapidly rising consumer demand for meat. So we must therefore pursue multi-pronged approaches of promoting both animal-based and also plant-sourced food proteins or the diets in order to deliver a diverse, nutritional and sustainable diet for all. So linking back to the latest Eat Lancet report, they um, have some generalized recommendations to reduce animal protein intake. Would it be a valid uh, recommendation for rural areas uh, where you and IFAD operate? Well, the recommendation to reduce the consumption of meat is debatable. Uh, for the poor rural communities in developing countries, animal source foods provide protein and micronutrients that are essential for improving their diet, growth, and cognitive function of children. And also given the fact that they do not reach an adequate daily intake of essential nutrients, the general suggestion of reducing their meat intake is not appropriate in their context. And also additionally, we know that it is important to note that meat can also be produced sustainably. And also when you talk about animal source foods, it's not only meat from, from cattle. We also have fish and we have other types of animal source foods. So not all of them are, 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 have, have, a, have a sustainable sustainability issue. So we have, we have to really be very careful what we really mean by sustainability and in what context. So it's, it's really, if you look at that level of, 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 a, of a livestock keeping, I wouldn't say that it's not sustainable. And at the same time also, also for, for, for livestock, livestock is not just food. It has other values, social values in the community. So without, without them keeping livestock, then there, there are other things we are, we are going to unbalance their livelihood system. Livestock is an asset. And it is their bank account, so they keep their money, pastoralists, they don't, they don't have bank accounts. Their bank account is a livestock, that's an asset. So if we erode their asset base, then we have to think about what next. So it is, it is not automatic that we can just decide, don't keep livestock, but we can think about what are the sustainable ways of keeping livestock by reducing amount of grains fed to the animals, by reducing the amount of water used for irrigation, the use of energy, so that there is more sustainability, in the, in the, in the, especially for, for, for grazed animals. And that was Joyce Njoro, IFAD's nutrition expert, talking to Maras Groy on what the diet of the future looks like and what this means for rural people in a sustainable food system. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we hear from Lesotho's leading chef, Scar Motowene, and what she thinks are the big issues for farmers in her country. Chef Scar Mutawene is a renowned chef 
cookbook author and entrepreneur in the African mountain kingdom of Lesotho. She first came to fame after winning the 2012 award for Gourmand Best African Cookbook in the World. Scar specializes in traditional local cuisine, which promotes healthy eating by using local produce. She also supports IFAD's Recipes for Change initiative and has visited an IFAD supported project in Lesotho. She told us more. I went to a small rural village, which is about an hour's drive from the capital town of Lesotho, Maseru. And the village is called Makorwana in the Rea district. They have very, very limited resources. And with what they have, I was very, very impressed with the work that the, the farmers and the community they are doing. And I think also what impressed me the most is the one young farmer that I spend a lot of time with, who's got livestock, he's also involved in, in, in crop production and so on, and he's very young, he's in his 30s. And his age, seeing somebody that, that young, being involved in agriculture, to me was very, very impressive. I, I hope that I can see more people actually go into, go into, into agriculture like that, especially younger people, because that is the future. But I was very impressed with the, his knowledge about how to take care of his livestock. Uh, this is from the trainings and the workshops that were afforded to them by IFAD. And also job creation, because uh, he's, he's also, he had people around the village as well that were also working for him, even at his young, young, young age. Scar, can I, can I ask you, um, after your visit there, what would you say are the main threats to farmers in Lesotho right now? Climate change is the biggest one because at the moment that is uh, uncertain about the loss in their crop production because due to, due to, climate, to climate change. That, that I can say is one of the biggest threats. And also, secondly, I think lack of knowledge on new modern farming techniques, for instance, like maybe hydroponics or aquaponics, uh, is, is lacking. So I think those are the kind of things that uh, the farmers need to be empowered with more because, I mean, whether we like it or not, climate change it is a reality. It affects everybody. So we need to make sure that we teach people and people are aware on how they can adapt and how they can make use of uh, the, 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 the climate that we are uh, in at the moment. How important is it to, to balance nutrition when we look at the solutions to help people deal with climate change? Uh, we're talking about uh, food security, uh, malnutrition. Uh, it's very important. It's very important uh, that um, everything is balanced because uh, we want, uh, uh, especially when I'm talking about the younger generation, we want people, we want children growing up, making sure they eat nutritiously and uh, to make sure that they're eating, they know where their food is coming from and they're eating uh, uh, nutritious um, uh, meals. And uh, it's very important that we really tap into that. How do you, in, in, in your cooking, in, in your businesses, how do you work on nutrition and sustainability issues? By making sure that I interact with the farmers and understand where my ingredients are coming from. This way, I am in a better position to understand their challenges and plan my menus and dishes accordingly. And I really um, enjoy doing that and going out there and seeing where everything comes from because it, it really puts me in a better, 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 better spot to make sure that whatever we are doing is sustainable. Also to assist them as well to, uh, as a market for them because I'm buying from them as well, especially the, the smallholder farmers around me. Uh, and Chef Scar, tell me, what, what are the next opportunities for you as a as a chef and as an entrepreneur? I would say establishing community uh, fresh produce markets to consolidate all the produce. And I would really, that is something that I'm looking to do now, that I'm working 
that I'm working on now because I think it's very important now because some of the farmers, most of the farmers, the problem they have is they say there's no market. So if maybe we can assist them and, and, and help them to consolidate all the produce and have um, a fresh produce market where people can come and then they can uh, be able, if I may put it that, like uh, cut, cut up the middleman, if you have to put it that way, and come and get fresh produce uh, from the different communities. Chef Scar was visiting the Wool and Mohair Promotion Project in Lesotho, which is designed to boost resilience to climate change and economic shocks among poor rural people across the country. The project works on climate-smart rangeland management, improved livestock production and management, and wool and mohair fibre handling and marketing. You can find out more about Scar's trip to the project and the project itself by going to IFAD's website at www.ifad.org. Also, you can download a nutritious recipe from Chef Scar and the community we're working with in Lesotho at the IFAD website under Recipes for Change. And you can also go to the same address, forward slash podcasts, to hear our other podcasts. In episode six, we have a special message on the coronavirus crisis from IFAD's president, Gilbert Hongbu. In episode five, we spoke to Sabrina Elba about why she and her husband, Idris Elba, are supporting IFAD. In episode three, we talked to a fascinating young entrepreneur from India, putting the spice into the sweet industry. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future. But back to this edition. Coming up, we're heading across to Kenya, where we speak to Kenyan TV star Chef Ali Lartiste and what he saw when he visited IFAD projects in Rwanda and closer to home. And a bit later on, we have a recipe exclusively to Farms Food Future listeners from Italian Michelin-starred chef Christina Bauman. And another one from Chef Pierre Tiam, all the way from Senegal via your larder. Chef Ali Said Mandri, more commonly known as Chef Ali Lartiste, is a Kenyan chef and media personality. Born in Mombasa, Ali began cooking early and by age 12, he had already begun selling cakes he had made to his fellow students at his school. On graduating from Utali College, Ali worked in education, but his big break came when he worked with celebrity chef Osama El Said on Dubai TV. Ali's been named among the top five chefs for African cuisine. Currently, Ali owns L'Artiste Pastry Factory and is a representative of Kenya's Chef Association, as well as featuring in various radio and television shows. He's passionate about promoting African cuisine. And because of that, he's also a passionate supporter of IFAD's work in the region. Working with IFAD's Recipes for Change initiative, Ali's visited IFAD projects in Rwanda and closer to home in Kenya. Over to Chef Ali. So the first trip with IFAD is when I went to uh, Rwanda, that is in Kirehe. So this is basically the rural part of Rwanda, known as Kirehe, such a beautiful place. And I remember, it was many years ago, but I remember very well meeting Olive, and she had something done by IFAD. It's basically a project done by IFAD, funded by IFAD, a project that was done using biogas, where she uses cow dung to create fuel and and uh, get fuel to cook her dishes. So this was really impressive because the project was basically how she can be able to create her own fuel at home, her own gas, which is basically biogas, and this was made using cow dung. It was so impressive. So at the end of the day, we cooked an amazing meal with her using her ingredients from her farm, and it was really impressive. So I basically learned a lot in terms of the cuisine and uh, what I could do to spice it up and make it fun, thanks to Ivan. So, Ali, um, in both of the projects you went to, what would you say would be the main threats you've seen to, to farmers in the region, in East and in Southern Africa? Climate change, um, because it is very unpredictable right now. Sometimes we get rain, sometimes we don't get rain at all, sometimes it's dry. 
And uh, at the end of the day, uh, both the two projects, uh, climate change was a major issue for them because, you know, they cannot be able to bring up their crop sustainably in terms of basically because of the climate change, because sometimes it changes, sometimes it is perfect for growing up their crops, sometimes it's not at the end of the day. So they tend to get problems in terms of bringing up the uh, livestock. At the end of the day, it becomes a little bit of an issue. So, so Ali, how important is it to, to balance nutrition in these solutions? And, and can you tell us a little bit how in your work you try to balance nutrition as well? In terms of what you eat at the end of the day, because, you know, uh, for a balanced diet, you know, you need, you need to have a little bit of some protein. And then you need to have, of course, the starch you need as well. And, of course, balance it really well. So my main thing was base, would basically be like, you know, how to balance it together and make it a balanced meal. So in Kenya, we do eat a lot of meat at the end of the day. And then now we do balance it with the starch, which is basically going to come in from either the rice or a little bit of uh, the ugali, which basically would be a good source of uh, starch in there at the end of the day, or maybe some potatoes that do actually grow in East Africa as well. So balancing together would basically give you a nice balanced diet, and then we do a lot of greens as well. So basically, I would say the eating habit here it is it is always a balanced diet because in the country people do eat ugali, which is uh, the the maize. Um, cooked in um, ground maize, cooked in, of course, some uh, water and made it into a solid kind of form. This is our staple. But we do definitely balance it with some greens, some kelps that are readily available uh, in the country. And, of course, some meat. They love the meat at the end of the day. So it is basically balancing together. But, however, if you basically don't want to eat the meat, you can basically get your protein from beans, which are readily available. These are the red kidney beans or the njahe, the black beans, which are the future 50 foot as well. And uh, people do survive. Like there's a lovely giveri that's made out of, this is a lovely staple dish in the country, the Kikui community, which is made out of uh, red kidney beans mixed with some maize. And then, you know, you just toss it up with a bit of some onions and garlic and then make a lovely dish out of it. So Ali, um, Thank you very much for that. T- tell me a little bit about um, what your next plans are for you- yourself as a chef and as an entrepreneur. My basically big thing is basically um, uh, saving the world from hunger. I am really, really into zero hunger and zero waste. And this is basically the reason that I did um, kind of left the industry, the hotel industry, for more of just pursuing how I can be able to reduce waste in uh, the world and the country in general. I used to be a chef in a certain group of hotels, but then that wastage they made me um, kind of despise the hotel industry because, you know, there are a lot of things we can do than waste food that's already been paid for. So my biggest thing is basically to end hunger and, and end waste in the world, and this is why I am very grateful to work very closely with EFAD because at the end of the day, I think we think the same. And, you know, it's basically from farm to plate and, of course, again, to reduce wastage. You know, you want to save lives at the same time, reduce waste, and it all starts with the chefs because we as the chefs, we are going to make sure that in the hotel industry, we would never waste any food. That food that's already been paid for would definitely be going out to feed people who are hungry. And of course, when we cook in the kitchen, we should make sure that we are going to use the ingredients in a good way that we don't waste anything. We use our trimmings at the end of the day. So this is basically my aim right now. It is more of uh, just being a chef in the industry or in the hotel industry, but more of a chef who's a spokesperson who is an advocate of zero hunger, zero waste in the world. And this is why I'm here working very closely with media rather than the hotel industry. Thanks to Chef Ali Saeed Mandri. You can find out more about what Chef Ali cooked in Rwanda and Kenya. You can even download the recipes to cook at home, all by going to ifad.org forward slash latest forward slash campaigns forward slash recipes for change. I'm Brian Thompson and this is Farms Food Future. You can hear more podcasts by going to www.ifad.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Coming up, we're cooking from a tin can with IFAD's Recipes for Change chef, Christina Bauman. Well, in fact, it's more cooking with beans 
and also more dishes with beans from Chef Pierre Tiam. But before that, we're talking trees. This is Farms Food Future. Could you earn more from carbon offsets than traditional farming practices? What about the impacts it has on food security? While IFAD doesn't work in the carbon credit market, I asked IFAD's Pierre-Yves Guides what we're doing around reforestation and forestry issues. We are involved in a couple of projects related to reforestation, though, uh, and, and landscape restoration, for instance. Uh, we are involved also on projects related to Red Plus, such as in Vietnam, uh, which is a project we are working on uh, as we speak with the Green Climate Fund. Uh, but those initiatives are not directly related to carbon credits. Could you clarify a little bit for us what, what Red Plus actually is? Yeah, sure. Red Plus is a mechanism which has been negotiated in the framework of the UNFCCC, the Convention of, on Climate Change. Uh, and the, the objective of this mechanism is to incentive, incentivize countries to protect their forest standing and to reduce deforestation, to reduce forest degradation, and to increase, basically, carbon stocks in forest. So it's a payment for results achieved in the past. So it's an incentive. Are, are there any concerns that um, all of this could have an impact on food security? Is this one of the issues we're looking at? I think that if there is an impact on food security, it, sh it should be positive uh, because the, the better you protect the landscape, the better you protect the forest in general, uh, the healthier the soil you are working on, the richer the biodiversity, the healthier the, the cycle of water, the water management systems, basically. Uh, so the more productive landscape you can have, which is obviously positive in terms of, of food security. So, so we have we, we work in certain projects on 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 related issues around reforestation. Definitely. How do you see see this developing in the future? Could you see it that at some point a small farmer would say that I earn this much from this crop, this much from this crop, and I also earn this much in carbon credits by maintaining this area of forest on my land? Definitely, I see a, I see a kind of alignment of, of these different, I would say, area of works. For years, um, the work of ministries of environment in one side and the work of ministries of agriculture has been uh, treated in isolation in a way, uh, sometimes like competitive agenda in countries. But as we speak, we are seeing that there is an increasing awareness that land is only one and there is a need to put together the agenda of different ministries and different sectors and different actors to make a better use of these lands. Many reports have been published in recent months or years a very famous one, uh, showing that there is a need to put in, in more cohesion, cohesion these different agenda, and this is totally feasible to protect the forest, to increase food security, to increase food production um, for the benefit of everyone, basically. So I think that this is the way uh, our work is going to, to, to be reoriented uh, with the time. Um, and therefore, the work of IFAD, which has, which has been extremely focused on food security, is going to increasingly take into consideration elements related to, uh, to forest protection and potentially carbon credits, which is one way of financing those different initiatives. It's not the only one, it's one option. Thanks to Pierre-Yves. Up next, we hear about an IFAD project in Morocco that's been cashing in on agroforestry. And after that, it's time to get your pinny on and join IFAD's Recipes for Change Michelin-starred chef Christina Bauman as she digs deep in her larder along with Senegal's kitchen sensation, Pierre Tiam. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson. Now we cross over to the IFAD-supported Rural Development Programme in the Mountainous Zones, Phase 1 in Morocco. The programme is designed to improve living conditions for people living in mountainous zones, where climate change has caused erosion and desertification. It works on two fronts, developing the agricultural value change and value addition to the crops produced, and then 
also on sustainable nature resource management, climate change adaptation and diversification. The programme includes 32 communities in the province of Sefru and Dazilal, where 80% of the surface area is mountainous. It targets rural communities with high incidences of poverty and areas with significant soil degradation and has a particular focus on women and young people. Nafal Telahigi is the country programme manager for Morocco. He told us just how much reforestation has been a part of the project. So in terms of environmental action, the idea was to move from cereal cropping to tree cropping or a mixed system to increase resilience, to reduce the impact on the land and to adapt the systems to the new climate change. So what has been done is basically uh, many plantations in terms of tree cropping that we know, like uh, of uh, almonds, of uh, of apple trees, walnuts, all that has been done. And that's not really agroforestry, that's really agricultural production, let's say. I would like to mention two examples of, of a species that we particularly used in this project, which is called the caroubier in French, carob in English, I think. This is basically a species that is used, widely used in Morocco, if I'm not wrong, Morocco is the second producer in the world of this species. And we have done about 270 hectares of this species, plantations, right, in Azilel, in a place called Moulay Aysa Bindris in Azilel. And basically, why this species? Because this species has many advantages. It's basically used by the local population for uh, its fruits. They can consume the fruits. It can be used as a flower. Uh, medicinal plant also they can use it all for cosmetics it also produces gum that they can sell to some other industries and uh, it can produce wood so these are many advantages that you can get from this tree uh, the other thing the project is doing beekeeping so we thought maybe this tree can be also used to do uh, big to to be like a forage also for the bees and and there is a link there so we thought it could be a win-win as well there with other livestock uh, or uh, animal production uh, component. It is also a species that can protect the landscape, can actually reduce erosion. We have done many hectares of this. Uh, 270 is really a big number because you don't find really space to do the plantations because of the extension of the cereal cropping. So uh, 270 hectare may sound small, but it's really quite interesting in that context. Uh, so that species was really uh, was really important as a central piece in the ecosystem, and it can generate livelihood. Uh, this objective has been finished by the project. It's done. The 270 hectares also are planted. We have done 700 hectares for almonds, for example, which is contributing to combating soil erosion and actually generating an important impact or uh, important income for the population. Uh, we've planted almost 200,000 trees of uh, apple. That's 230 hectares and about 60,000 trees in Azilal. So the other one was in, uh, in Sefru. And the walnuts, as I mentioned earlier, we planted around 10,000 trees in uh, Azilal and uh, in Ait Bori, and then about 23,000 other trees in another uh, place, in Ait Abbas, for example. Uh, so basically, what I wanted to say, we have done a lot of plantation. It's really transforming the landscape uh, combating the impacts of climate change, desertification, and its generating activities. So they were really targeted for this objective. We wanted to have a species that can generate many, many benefits. And I think the Karub was really uh, the star in this, uh, if I may say. Uh, there is demand for it from the population. And uh, I think that's something that we can scale up. Naufal went on to tell me about some of the other measures that have been put in place for these communities in Morocco, which are raising productivity and sustainable credentials. So we have processing units to transform waste from olive trees into energy. We have been promoting uh, uh, weather monitoring stations. We have been monitoring drip irrigation and water efficiency. So it's, it's really a, a, group, a group of uh, activities that we're doing together trying to address this issue of climate change in the mountain areas of Morocco. Thanks to IFAD's Naufal Telahigi. And full details on that project can be found on ifad.org. Coming up, we talk to Chris Smadger about Small Farm Future. Chris Smadger works a small mixed farm in Somerset in the UK and blogs at smallfarmfuture.org.uk.
He's written on environmental and agricultural issues for a wide variety of publications. Originally an academic, he tired of the office life and was motivated by the permaculture movement. Wanting to create a sustainable living that cared for the environment, he had no prior background in farming. He's now something of a champion of the smallholder farming lifestyle. I asked him to tell us about his work on his Somerset farm. We've got an 18-acre site right on the edge of a small town of about 25,000 people through. We've had the land for quite a while now, uh, 17 years, but it was just over 10 years ago where we set up a little local veg box scheme market garden. So that's the the, the main farming enterprise. We've also got woodland, um, a sort of shift complement of livestock. Uh, I mean, sort of basically a, a, a small holding, but with the, the market garden as the commercial side of things. And I sort of got into that out of concerns about sort of environmental food and farming issues and just feeling like we needed to relocalise food and start taking care of our food needs more locally, really. Can you explain to me for the listeners what is a veg box scheme? Okay, so basically it's it's a way of direct retailing produce, sort of fruit and vegetable produce from a market garden. So customers, people pay uh, to get a, um, a regular delivery of fruit and vegetables, seasonal fruit and vegetables that are grown on the farm as, as far as is possible. So they don't necessarily get to choose exactly what's in the box each week, you know. So really it was... It was invented uh, by various growers in, in the 1980s as a way of, you know, the kind of wholesale prices that they were getting, the the, the way that the, um, the middleman was kind of squeezing the market, was making it difficult for local growers to stay in business. So by by selling direct to the customer as, as a small operator, it makes it more economically feasible to, you know, for the business to stack up, basically. It sort of gives, uh, you know, also... It, um, the, the customers um, like it because, you know, they like to see a, a local farm that they, you know, that's kind of tangible to them, a, a place um, sort of on their doorstep that's producing food for them. Is the model that you're promoting, the model you have as a small farmer in the UK, is it something that's being taken on by more small businesses, more small farmers in Britain? It has become more widespread. I mean, there's always, it, you know, one of the problems is there's a sort of colonisation of, of you know any any new method that gets um, invented, there's a kind of colonisation of it by larger scale players. So you get um, you know big box schemes that you know that essentially are um, you know a, a sort of mainstream wholesaling operations. So then people have to sort of reinvent other methods. But I mean it it, it has spread, and and I think you know with concerns about farming practices, climate change, and so on, you know. There are more small-scale local farms around, but there are a lot of impediments, you know, the functioning of the global economics, essentially, but also land access and, and it being able to establish new small farms is, is a very difficult thing here in the UK. So, um, you know, there's still not really enough people producing local food. Do you see any, any parallels, Chris, between the issues you face as a small farmer in a developed country, in a developed economy, to some of the issues our clients here at IFAD, the small holder farmers in developing countries are facing i mean i think yeah i think i think there's a there, there are a lot of parallels um um and and certainly the difficulties that we face as farmers in in some ways are are similar you know access to um markets um access to land uh and so on i mean i think Probably the bigger issue is that is is the way that the sort of global food commodity markets work, which you know generally don't work to the benefit either of small scale farmers or of ordinary people. How do you feel in general about the future for small farms and small farmers? What's going to see us through, if anything does, is people building autonomies at the local level and engaging with their local ecological base, figuring out how to produce food sustainably. And, and people 
People are doing that. People are thinking about that. Um, but, you know, the big impediment is the way the economics of land and the economics of food work. And there doesn't seem to be much movement on that. You know, people uh, are, are really up against that and having to figure out ways of, of trying to um, get by within the margins of it, I guess. Thanks to Chris Smadger joining us from the UK. His book, A Small Farm Future, will be released later in the year by Chelsea Green Publishers. And details of that can be found on his blog, smallfarmfuture.org.uk. Coming up, ready, steady, cook. As the world is told to hashtag stay at home, we've asked our Recipes for Change chef, Christina Bowerman, to come up with a recipe idea from store-covered ingredients. The Michelin-starred Italian chef, through IFAD's Recipes for Change work, knows full well how many farmers in developing countries are already living on the climate change front line. But now they have the added threat to their health and the knock-on economic effects of the global coronavirus pandemic. For the past five years, IFAD's Recipes for Change chefs have been visiting projects on the ground to raise awareness of how IFAD is working with farmers to build a resilient future. Chef Christina has a special message for us and a healthy recipe idea. Hi, this is Christina Bowerman from Glossosteria Rome in Trastevere. Actually, I'm in my house now. I have been for the last 14 days. One message, first message, the most important one. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay at home. That's the most important thing. Follow the government direction because that's the only way that we can get out of this situation. Um, the sooner, the better. So second thing, I want to make sure that everybody knows that IFAD is doing everything that they can in order to support the developing countries. If us, the Western civilization, is having trouble, so we can only imagine what's going on in the developing countries and IFAD is making sure to support them all the way through. Third, one quick recipe, something that you probably have in your dry storage, something that you probably, you know, already know how to use it. And uh, I chose my favorite legume, the garbanzo beans. I soaked them the night before, considered that the proportion is one part of uh, garbanzo beans and three parts of water. Soak them all the night through, and then the day after I put new water and I put some stuff in it, like a, gar a garlic clove, and I uh, cook them very, very low heat, almost all the way through. Actually, while, while they are cooking, when they are almost done, I put a little bit in my plate with uh, lemon juice and parmesan cheese, it's really good. Then once they're done, once they are done, I divide them into parts. The first part, I, I prepare hummus, traditional one with tahina, a little bit of uh, cumin and lemon juice and olive oil, and it's a wonderful dip. The other part inside, I put a little bit of sofrito in a pan, so celery, carrots, onion, a little bit of olive oil, and uh, I add the garbanzo beans, then I add water, and then I cook the pasta directly in it. I prefer the, either the fresh, fresh pasta like maltagliati, or otherwise you can use a small pasta. And you will see that at the end it's, it becomes really creamy. Once you cook it, uh, actually turn off the heat a little bit uh, before the cooking time for the pasta and uh, let it sit for a few minutes. It's going to be uh, wonderful. Add a little bit of olive oil on top and it's a perfect uh, nutritional uh, one-dish meal. Thanks to Chef Christina Bauman. And we also had our friend and fellow recipe for chef Pierre Tiam dropping in with his recommendations on how you can hashtag stay at home and still eat well. Over to you, Pierre. Hello, this is Chef Pierre Kern from uh, my confinement here in Warwick, New York. Wherever you are, I would like to share a message. Stay safe, stay home, follow the guidelines of the local authority and the World Health Organization, and we will get over this pandemic sooner than later. Um, meanwhile, cook, definitely cook at home, cook from your pantry. I'm going to share a recipe with you. Very simple, uh, easy to make. It's a vegan chili. I use beans uh, for the recipe. Black beans I prefer, but you can use any beans of your liking. And uh, all you need is those beans and a tomato sauce. Uh, the tomato sauce, you can make it from scratch with olive oils, garlic, onions, bell pepper, canned chopped tomatoes, cumin, cayenne if you like some heat, 
and salt and pepper. So uh, you combine that tomato sauce with cooked the beans. You know, the beans, if you have canned beans, that's fine. You just rinse them and you combine it with the sauce. Or you cook your beans by soaking them overnight first and then the next day cook it in water for about 30 to 45 minutes until they're really soft. Don't add any salt in the beans at the early stage, just season it at the end of the cooking process. So once the beans are cooked, combine it with your tomato sauce et voila! You have your vegan chili, then you can eat with rice, with fonio, or just with crackers. That's a dish that you can also have the next day when the flavors are even more inside the dish, so it's even better, I prefer the next day. Uh, and meanwhile, while you're doing all this cooking at home and enjoying time with uh, your closed ones, rest assured that while this pandemic is being sorted out, organizations like IFAD is doing its best to supporting uh, governments in developing countries around the world and assuring food security for rural communities. So enjoy your chili. Bon appétit, and see you soon. Well, I never knew you could do so much with beans and chickpeas, so I'm off to try that out. Do share with the Farms Food Future community some of your lockdown cooking ideas at the following email address, podcasts at ifad.org. And you can get a recap of the recipes and ingredients on the IFAD website. Next edition, we have another Recipe for Change chef, Lance Sito, live from Fiji, telling us about his recipe for chicken soup. That brings this edition of Farms Food Future to a close. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and our reporters, Maros Groy and Julia Gemaraj, and everyone who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me. That email address again is podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text message to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of May when we'll be gearing up for World Environment Day and talking biodiversity all the way. Also, we'll have the latest news on how IFAD is working through the coronavirus crisis. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Remember, hashtag stay at home and listen to Farms Food Future. Until the next time, from me, Brian Thompson and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening, stay safe and remember to wash your hands.